I know that I don't uh, look it now, uh, but years ago, I actually used to be a Taekwondo instructor. Looking at me, you might wonder, well, what happened, Eric? Uh, probably many reasons, self-discipline, but probably the biggest reason would just be food. I tend to like it. At the Taekwondo studio, I, I was in charge of teaching a class called Little Ninjas. This is a whole bunch of four-year-olds, and we would always begin the class with the same mantra. Here's how the mantra went. It went, focus your eyes, focus your mind, focus your body, sir. That's, that's how we would start every class, and in order to teach them absolutely anything, in order to hold uh, their total four-year-old attention, eyes, mind, and body, we needed to do that over and over and over again throughout the class. <laughs> now, anyone who's ever worked with four-year-olds knows that keeping their attention for a 30-minute class is quite a challenge. Once their eyes drift, the mind wanders, and the body follows soon after. On numerous occasions trying to teach this class, I dreamt of having total control, total authority for just 30 minutes so that I could teach them just one thing. If only I could, if only I could hold their eyes in place. If only I could read their minds and stop them when they wander. If only I could keep their fingers out of their noses and out of their friends' noses. But alas... I never gained total authority. At the very most, I held their attention for three to four minutes and occasionally experienced the miracle of an uninterrupted five minutes. Hallelujah. Total attention. Total control. In today's text, Luke 5, open there if you would, we're going to see a total miracle. A miracle that goes beyond what we normally think about when we think about miracles as it touches every aspect of our humanity. Would you join me in prayer before we hop into this text? Gracious God, would you work in us now to give you our total attention? Focus our eyes, focus our minds. Focus our bodies, Lord, so that we might learn from you and your word all that we can and be nourished by that knowledge. Give us now, Lord, an opportunity to encounter you and see you for who you are. Speak to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. As I said before, please open up or click over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 17. That's Luke 5, beginning at verse 17. Chronologically, we're actually toward the beginning of Jesus's active ministry. At the start of chapter 5, he's just called his first disciples. And right before our passage begins, he healed a man of the extremely deadly disease, leprosy. Leprosy at that time was the plague of their day, the cancer of ours. Chances of survival were minimal, and a cure was basically unthinkable. And yet Jesus does the miraculous in that he heals this man with just a word, the spoken word. All he said is, I will be clean. Done. Man is healed. And you can imagine that after a miracle like that, the word just spreads like rapid fire. This guy can heal people of leprosy with just his words, just his mouth. And in the text we're looking at today, Jesus just recently healed the man of leprosy, and now he's teaching. 
At this point, he's gained significant notoriety, so much so that we see he's attracted the attention of the upper echelons of Jewish society. Look at, verse, look at the first verse with me of chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 17. It says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now let's stop there for a second, if you would. 2,000 years of the New Testament being read and shaping culture might give us a a very one-sided view of a word that appears in the verse we just read. It's the word Pharisees. I imagine if I were speaking to a children's Sunday school class, when I said the word Pharisees, I might get a collective boo from all the kids. You see, for those raised in the church, Pharisees are, are seen as a negative. But if you're here today and we're not raised in the church or are, are new to Christianity, you're actually at an advantage here in that you can read this text with fresh eyes the way its original readers might have. You see, this is the first time that group, Pharisees, appears in the Gospel of Luke. And during the time of Luke, the Pharisees were regarded in Israel as the protectors of the law, the pastors of the people. The Pharisees' goal was to keep the nation faithful to the Mosaic faith, while other groups were delving into Hellenistic, Greek mindsets. So whereas in children's Sunday school today, the kids would all go, boo, when I said Pharisees, 2,000 years ago, they would have been cheering. A Pharisee is something that you aspire to, that you dreamed of becoming. It's what even the Apostle Paul said, listen, I could boast in this. I achieved the level of Pharisee. And with the Pharisees here in this text, we see the teachers of the law. Later in our text, they're going to be called the scribes. Why why is it important to, to know who these two groups are, Pharisees and scribes? Well, the greatest concern of these two groups is that the nation stay true to God's law. These two groups see themselves as the protectors of the people, and they've come to hear Jesus today to see, is this someone we need to protect the people from? They're here to answer the question, who is this man? Our text goes on to say, as the Pharisees and scribes were there, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. You see, the Pharisees and scribes come with a power of their own to examine and learn about this Jesus. But Jesus came with the power of the Lord, and he came to teach. Some learning is about to take place in the passage we're looking at today, and different groups are going to learn different things. We have scribes and Pharisees, but we also have some other groups here, if you'd continue reading with me. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Here's our second group, some friends. They've got a buddy who has some form of acquired disability. Somehow, this man has become paralyzed. We don't know the story, but he is no longer able to walk. I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced paralysis. Maybe you've broken a bone or were in an accident. In the disability ministry, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of people who have acquired disabilities like this man from accidents or illness. They use wheelchairs, prosthetic legs and arms, power chairs. They have physical therapy and medicines to manage pain. But in the time of Jesus, none of this was available. There were no wheelchairs. 
or physical therapists, no Tylenol or Advil. A man like the one we see here in this text was typically left to be a beggar or writhing in pain until their days came to an end. But imagine, people around the village are talking about this teacher who they saw healed a man with leprosy with just his words. And and who knows whose idea it was. Maybe it was uh, the man who was paralyzed. Maybe it was his friends. But they think, wait, if Jesus could heal someone with leprosy, I'm sure he could heal our buddy Dave. Now, before you go searching through the text, I have no idea what this guy's actual name is. I'm just calling him Dave, so don't come up after me, you know, afterward and say, oh, I couldn't find that. It's not there. Anyway, Dave's friends agree that it's worth a shot. And so they grab a bed. Uh, To be more accurate, they grabbed what would have probably looked like a stretcher. They put Dave on it and headed over to where they heard Jesus was. You've got to imagine how they built this up in their mind's eye. The friends would take Dave over to Jesus. Jesus would say a word or touch him or something. You just got to imagine they're thinking, oh, Dave's just going to jump off of that stretcher and start singing the hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah. And it's just going to be going. And they're saying, wow, this is going to be an amazing scene. There's no doubt they've built this up. But then comes verse 19. But, whenever you see a but in scripture, it typically doesn't mean anything good. But something has gotten in their way. And it's our third group. Look at verse 19 with me. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. Stop there if you would. There's a crowd, a roadblock. Their plan to bring Dave to Jesus is thrown for a loop. They can't get in because there are too many people. The crowd is assembled from all over. It's the Pharisees and scribes, but it's likely many other people who want to hear Jesus speak. Now, some friends might have seen a crowd like that one surrounded, uh, that surrounded Jesus and would have given up. Others might have waited outside all night, hoping to get his attention on his way out. But these friends were overcome with passion, desire, love, and a desire to see their buddy walk again. And so they could not wait. And so one of them gets this idea. Part of me wonders if it started off as a joke, you know? But then one of them said, no, 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 no. That's a good idea. Let's do it. Look back at verse 19 with me. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, it says, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, I know so many of us have heard that story before, and we're like, okay, just yeah, drops him down, but you got to really picture it. you got to go there with me. Imagine with me, if you would, the friends circle around to the back of the house, and uh, they find steps to the roof, or maybe there weren't steps on this house, so they had to go to the house next door and got on top of that one. And because the houses would have been so close in Palestine, they just jump over from one roof to the next roof, and having lugged their friend over and having rested, they begin to dig through the roof. Now, Palestinian roofs were like many of our city roofs in that they were horizontal, but very different in that every three feet, there would be a beam running parallel to the other beams. And then across that, they would have smaller pieces of wood all fit together to form a solid roof. And then on top of that, they would put twigs and reeds and other things and pat it down. And on top of that, a solid foot of dirt, all patted down. So when they began to dig, it was a mini excavation. 
at least two feet through that roof and through the weeds that were growing on top. I mean, just imagine being a part of the crowd for a moment, if you would. You're giving your total attention to Jesus, listening to to his teaching, when all of a sudden you feel something like a raindrop on the top of your head. You wonder, maybe it's going to rain and there's a slight hole in the ceiling. All of a sudden you feel more raindrops, but you look down at your hands and feet and see dust. Sunlight is starting to fill the room and you look up to see a couple of guys digging a hole as big as a body in the ceiling. You got a picture of one of the friends asking, do you think they noticed? Then all of a sudden, the crowd sees a bed, a stretcher being dropped from that gaping hole on ropes. And on this bed is a man. Wouldn't it have been awesome to see that guy's face just looking around? If there was ever a time for a photo op, this was it. The room is filled with dust. Beams are dropping down. You've got a spotlight on Jesus, man on a stretcher at his feet, and a group of friends looking down through the ceiling hole, looking sort of impish and proud, satisfied with what they accomplished. And I imagine the Pharisees gathered, kind of shaking off the dust of their robes, and the man on the stretcher just looking up at Jesus, beaming. It would be an Instagram-worthy photo. It'd get retweeted and shared thousands of times. The man on his stretcher is now looking up at Jesus, the one who can heal him of his paralysis. Jesus looks at the friends. Look down at your text. He looks at the friends through the hole they created in the ceiling and then looks at the man. And what he sees, our text says, is faith. They have a firm faith, these friends, a firm faith that it would be worth it to go to jail for destroying property. It would be worth it to have to pay the fine to fix the house. It would be worth it because surely this man has the power to heal. Can I ask you, do you have faith like these men? Are you willing to risk financial burden, willing to to break a sweat? Are you willing to be ostracized or thought a fool for the sake of bringing someone to Jesus' feet with the hope of healing? These men have faith, and Jesus sees, sees it. In response to their great faith, Jesus looks at the man on the stretcher, and this is what he says. Look again down at your text. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Verse 20, man, your sins are forgiven you. You've got to imagine that that's a hard pill to swallow. We don't get to hear the thoughts or see the faces of the friends, but you've got to imagine that they're at least slightly confused. You see, they brought their friend to Jesus to have his his body healed, not his sins forgiven. Having his sins forgiven was likely not even on their mind. But when Jesus saw this man laid before him, his attention didn't go to the man's legs. His attention went to the man's greatest need, the healing of his soul. The series we're talking about, is uh, we're going through, is all about miracles. And miracles, at the end of the day, are truly about authority. C.S. Lewis defined a miracle. Here's how he defined it. He said he defined a miracle as an interference with nature by a supernatural authority. He goes on to say, in calling these interferences miracles, we do not mean that they are contradictions or outrages. We mean that left to nature's own resources, she could never produce them. 
You see, when Jesus speaks here and says, your sins are forgiven, he does so with a claim of supernatural authority. He has basically announced that he has performed a miracle in their midst. You see, every good Jewish boy and girl knows that only God can forgive sins. Even the men up in the ceiling, they go, wait, wait, wait what's going on? They know Psalm 103.3 says it is God who forgives iniquity. They know Isaiah 43.25 says it is God who blots out transgressions and chooses not to remember our sins. They know Micah 7.18 says no one is like God. Did you hear that? No one is like God pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. So Jesus is saying here that he A human is interfering with nature so as to perform a miracle, healing this man's soul, bringing him from spiritual death to spiritual life. You see, the friends are learning a lesson. Jesus has authority over the soul. And it's the soul's cleansing that is this man's and every person's ultimate need for a miracle. If you can't see, you can't hear, you can't walk, you can't talk. Your greatest need is not the healing of your disability. That's not where Jesus thinks it's best to start. It's got to begin in your soul. We can only imagine that the friends were taken aback by this statement of Jesus, but we can know for sure that the scribes and Pharisees were upset by it. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I think the NIV translates this a bit better than the ESV when it says the Pharisees and the scribes began thinking to themselves. Clearly based on the context of the passage, no one has dared to speak these thoughts aloud yet. They're taken aback by Jesus' statement, and these two questions are running through their minds that they're trying to answer. Why does this man speak this way? And who is he? The text says that they're thinking he's blasphemed. You see, blasphemy is a, is a very serious charge. It's the charge that will eventually lead to Jesus' conviction and death on a cross. Being convicted of blasphemy was punishable by death in Israel. And so these men, whose greatest concern is the preservation of God's law, as they hear this great speaker, are now thinking, does does this man need to be killed? He was fine if he was just a great speaker, but with his claims, now he's dangerous. But as they're working all of this out in their minds, Jesus performs another miracle. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Don't miss that. We'll get to his answer, but the action before it is vital. Some want to look at verse 22 and say that Jesus just observed the religious leaders' responses. Perhaps their facial expressions were giving them away. My wife regularly tells me that I do not have a poker face. If we're uh, playing a board game and I have a great next move or if I'm about to win... I recognize that I lack the ability to hide my joy or my sneakiness. Therefore, I always lose. It's quite depressing. Don't laugh at me. (laughs) There there are some who think the Pharisees lacked this ability like I did. But I think that understanding is mistaken. 
Because the word used here in verse 22, underline it, circle it, do what you got to do, perceived, doesn't mean that Jesus read their faces or that he casually noticed. The word means knew fully. He knew fully their thoughts. This same incident is recorded by Mark in his gospel. And in Mark 2.8, it says that when the Pharisees thought these things, Jesus knew their thoughts in his spirit. That's the claim Jesus is making. Once again, we see, as C.S. Lewis described, an interference with nature by a supernatural authority. Jesus knew their thoughts. I've heard a story of a man invited to preach at a church who began by saying to the congregation, if you could read my mind and knew my thoughts, there's no way that you would be listening to me speaking this morning. As the congregation murmured, he added, and if I could read your minds and knew your thoughts, I doubt I would want to stand looking at and talking to you this morning. You see, Jesus was that preacher who could read the minds of his listeners And so he responded to them, again, look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? You've got to wonder what the faces of the Pharisees looked like then. How did he know what we were thinking in our hearts? How did he know what I I was thinking? Once again comes this question, who is this man? Who is this man who claims to heal the soul? Who is this man who claims to to read the mind? The Pharisees are learning a lesson. Jesus has authority over the mind. His claim is not just the soul, but the mind. Perhaps the Pharisees, stuck in their criticism and cynicism of Jesus, would recognize once again the implication of this man knowing the thoughts of their minds, the thoughts of their hearts. For Jeremiah 17.10 says that it is only the Lord who searches the heart and examines the mind. Thus they might ask, is this further blasphemy? But Christ doesn't give them uh, enough time to really think that through. He follows with an additional question. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? I mean, it's a simple question with a simple answer. It's easier to say something that can't be visually verified than to say something that can be visually substantiated. The easier claim is, to have forgiven sins because you can't prove it wrong. So here's the issue. Is Jesus's claim an empty word or the real thing? Has he really healed the soul? Has he really read the mind? The scribes, the Pharisees, the faithful friends, and the man on the bed must all wrestle with this question for a moment. Are we in the presence of a pathological liar, a trickster, But here's the good news. (laughs) Jesus doesn't leave them to guess. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, but that you may know. He's saying, so that you know, so that it's clear, so that we're all on the same page, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Three commands. Get up, take the mat, go home. What happens next leaves us with two options. If the man flops around like a fish out of water, unable to stand, then Jesus is caught in his lie or shown to be struggling with some form of schizophrenia. But 
if the man walks, then Jesus truly can forgive sins. He truly can read the mind. It would be seen that the authority had truly been given to him to interfere with all of nature. It would be a total miracle. So look, verse 25. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Notice that the text says immediately. There's no, uh, there's no moment of building tension. There's no waiting. If this was a movie, it just wouldn't work well. In the movies, we want everything to building tension, looking back at everyone. There's no time. It happens immediately. He gets up, picked up, walked home, and he does it. Uh, and as, the, as he does it, the text says that he is glorifying God. He's got a song in his heart. And you can imagine him singing of how he was healed, of all that his friends did to, to lower him through the roof. He can't keep his testimony quiet. And so he calls out, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And he can't keep it quiet. He's singing his whole way home. And amazement seizes them all, it says. Isn't that marvelous? Do you see that in verse 26? They're amazed. The man who was laying on a mat, who couldn't push his way through the crowd, who had to be lowered through the ceiling, this man is now standing, walking, and singing praises to God. And what was the response of the people in, in their amazement? I love it. They started praising and glorifying God with him. These people who may have been unsure just a moment ago, got all the confirmation they needed that they were standing in the presence of the divine. And so with full assurance, they just joined in the song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Can you imagine seeing someone healed like that? Their soul, the mind, the body. Oh, this is a foretaste of things to come. And in verse 26, look, it says everyone Everyone joined in, all of them. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. I imagine this means even the Pharisees who doubted, at least some of them. Remember that there were Pharisees like Nicodemus who did believe in Jesus eventually. Perhaps some of them were, were there this day. They came in asking the question, who is this man? And halfway through their observation, they thought, we need to protect the people from this man. But now they are seized with amazement and glorifying God with assurance of who this man is. They may have been unsure before about him. Did he really have the authority to perform a miracle of the soul, of the mind? Well, his authority over all things to perform total miracles of soul, mind, body was confirmed when that man got up and walked. So yes, they have blessed assurance. And oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. These people were, were filled with awe. Look at verse 26. And they were saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They saw total authority. They saw a total miracle. The soul was forgiven. The mind was heard. The body was healed. Nature experienced an interference by a supernatural authority. And all those who witnessed left that home having to wrestle with the question, who is this man? Surely he has the authority. He's proven that. But that authority we know from the scriptures that we were raised on belongs only to God. 
Yet this man says, he, the son of man, has authority to forgive sins. So who is he? This is the question that you and I need to wrestle through today. Who is this man who has total authority? Who is this man who can perform total miracles? And what's the correct response to total authority? Fanny Crosby wrote those lyrics to Blessed Assurance that I sang before. She wrote them in 1873, and I think the second verse is our answer to that question of what the correct response to total authority is. It's total submission. Perfect submission, all is at rest. Sing it with me. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Jesus' miraculous works here should point us to recognize his divinity, his total authority, and should move us to perfect submission. Awed and amazed, we should be glorifying him as we were made to do. For those of you who would say that you're a Christian, before we close our study for this evening, I want you to know what perfect total submission means for you. Because I think we see a bit of, this, bit of it in this text. And these friends... I believe we see total submission as it's birthed out in total faith. The faith that Jesus sees in these friends is faith with feet. If you're calling yourself a Christian today, I've got some things I want to challenge you to stop doing and some things to start doing. Listen, friends, brothers, sisters, stop saying I'll pray for you and start actually praying for people. Stop just going to someone who's sharing you their trouble and say, well, I'll be sure to pray for you and walk away and completely forget about that. Each and every one of us, if you know Christ for any amount of time, you're probably guilty of that. Pray for them on the spot. Bring them before Jesus at that very moment. You got to stop liking causes on Facebook and start putting your money where your mouse is. Bring your feet to where you give a, give a thumbs up. Look at the friends and have faith with feet. Faith that can be seen by Jesus and all those around. You see, our, our man who was paralyzed also showed faith. Do, do, do you see that in the text? He got up. I know that seems silly, of course. I mean, yeah. He got up. Can you imagine Jesus saying to him, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? And the man responding, nah, I'm just going to hang out down here. Uh, I'm used to down here. I, I like it down here. You know, I, I haven't been healed long enough to actually know how to walk, Jesus. I, I need a couple of years of physical therapy before I start walking. Do, do, do you realize that's how many of us respond when we've been healed spiritually by Jesus? No, 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 no. I'm not ready to share my faith. I'm not ready to, to go out and actually uh, work do your work. I'm not ready to serve in Summer Blast or in TMC Kids or in 139. I, I just got healed. I can't walk yet. You see, total submission means going out and doing the work. It's what Fanny Crosby showed, a woman who was blind from childhood, a poet and a hymn writer who lived to please her Savior. She lived in total submission, sharing the gospel with anyone who would listen. In 1869, she actually penned the words to a hymn called Rescue the Perishing. When asked about the song, she explained, it was written following a personal experience at the New York City Bowery Mission. She went on to explain that she would go one night a week, every week, to talk to her boys. One night while speaking to them, 
she kept having the thought that there was a boy present who had wandered away from his mother and must be rescued that night or he would be eternally lost. She made a plea to each boy that night, going from boy to boy to boy. And at the end of it all, one young man came forward and said, did you mean me, Miss Crosby? I promised my mother to meet her in heaven, but as I'm now living, that'll be impossible. She prayed with him and led him to Christ. And as they finished, he said, now I'm ready to meet my mother in heaven, for I found God. You see, being in total submission to total authority of Christ means making that repetitive plea, being willing to look like a fool, putting a hole in the ceiling for the sake of someone's salvation, not just inviting your neighbor to the Christmas or Fourth of July concert, but opening your home for dinner, taking them out to coffee and paying offering to drive their kids to school or soccer practice, raising the roof so that you might lower them down to Jesus' feet. And when you've got them to dinner, when you've put the Starbucks in their hands, it's as easy as singing your story. Praise God for what he has done for you. Tell them of your blessed assurance so that they might be in our Savior, happy and blessed. For those of you who would say, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know what you think about him. You're unsure if he is worthy to be followed. Listen, the miracles of Jesus should challenge you as they were able to melt the hearts of those who were most opposed to any new ideology. Consider these truths. My friends, if you're not followers of Jesus, then you are just the same as the man who was lowered through that roof. You may not realize it, but your soul is in paralysis, and it is only Jesus that can heal. God knew this. He knew it. And so he so loved you that he took the roof off the world and lowered down his son so that you might believe on him and your soul might be healed. If today you're asking the question of Jesus, who is this man? I want to challenge you to believe on the one who has total authority, who performs total miracles. In him, in total submission, all will be at rest, you and your Savior, happy and blessed. Would you pray me? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, this is our story and this is our song. We can praise our Savior all the day long. Lord, you have healed us like you healed this man. Lord, you have shown yourself to be one we can have full blessed assurance in. Lord, we pray that, that those who are here tonight who are saying, I don't know about this Jesus yet. Lord, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you give them blessed assurance? And Lord, would you bring us, those who know Christ, to act recklessly, to tear down roofs, to do all we can to bring people to your feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.